that is actually a good like kind of segue into some of the like I know you wanted to talk like gear and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I mean there there's so much to like having done it now for the first time. There's so my the way that I view that hunt is totally different than I I had it in my head from like a gear standpoint and what I thought I needed versus what I actually needed. What is up, everybody? We have a full house, a packed house. I have Mr. Eric Barber to my right, Mr. Sawyer. Sawyer. Yeah, I've known you for like seven years. Sawyer. Can't get your name right. It's my nickname in grade grade school. Sawyer Briel across from me and virtually joining us, our very good friend, Mr. Brad Brooks. Good friend in general, also from Argali Outdoors. So if you need some sweet tents or game bags or knives, visit Argali Outdoors. You might even talk to Brad. I don't know. Does anybody talk to you anymore, Brad? You know, I, well, first of all, I couldn't have done a better plug myself, Mark. Um, and believe it or not, yes, my phone still rings and I still talk to people occasionally. <laughs> well, you got the personality for it. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to see you guys. Oh, my God. Oh, since oh, I know. We it's, miss it. It's like sitting across from Johnny Carson. I'm in stitches over here, Mark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, he's, on, he's on fire. I'm telling you what. Brad brings out the best in me. Gosh. Like Brad, we your you're pure glowing. joy. You're your, glowing. Your, pure, your pure joy. And you brought up, you mentioned, if anybody was listening closely, you brought up Kodiak, which we're fresh off. Fresh off a trip to Kodiak Island chasing Sidka Blacktails, the topic of this conversation today, this uh this uh, podcast that we're doing right now. Epic trip. Uh, logistically complex. I know we've been planning it for, I don't know, like a year, more than Literally a year. Literally a year. Long yep. time. And uh, I think that's kind of generally any Alaska hunt, but we're going to talk specifically about this one today because it's definitely worth doing. I know, I mean, this is like 100%, might be the coolest trip I've ever been on. It's definitely in my top three. And I'll put, actually, I'll uh, caveat that with, or not caveat it, but I find it interesting that personally, my top three trips are all chasing Sitka blacktails, twice on Kodiak. So, uh, I guess it goes to show like really how cool that place is. Now, Brad, you hunted that place a fair amount. I've hunted a few times. Yeah, it's one of my it's one of my favorite places. Just like I know it's not technically southeast Alaska, but I just think that. Um, that part of Alaska in particular, that Aleutian chain is uh, one of the most, it, it reminds me of what Jurassic Park is like. It feels like it should have dinosaurs on it. And it's hard to describe, but when you fly over, you're like, surely there's some dinosaur creatures down there. <clears throat> and then you look and there are giant brown bears. So it kind of feels like it fits. I was going to so. say, there's some things crawling around there that aren't far off and are probably leftovers from that period. I mean, it's... Uh, you're going to see brown bears when you go there. And, I, you know, that's one of the considerations that we have here during your planning process. You know, when if you're looking at doing this trip, definitely something you need to keep in mind, you know, before the trip and while you're there. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I love uh, Kodiak and I love southeast Alaska. I don't know why exactly. There's just something about the place and blacktails specifically that are just so much fun to hunt. And it just has not gotten old for me yet, Mark. So I was really glad to be able to share that with you guys. Cause I thought it was a, we had a fun crew of just, and it was 
you know, I don't know if you can cuss on your podcast, but it was poor weather. I'm going to try and I'm going to try and uh, use my uh, my family voice, my can, family mouth. We can edit podcast. out poor, Brad. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was my that was me cursing, Sawyer. Um, mm. Poor, uh, poor weather. But we had just like a great crew and a fun time. And, you know, a handful of giant deer were killed, which I just feel like that was like icing on the cake. So it was. Uh, I, yeah, I still, I'm with you, Mark. Like it was one of the most fun trips I've done. And, and for me, you know, I do a lot of like hunting alone all over the place. And I enjoy that for its, for, uh, for what that is, but sharing a hunt with friends is, I don't know that there's anything that's more enjoyable for me than that. And I don't get a chance to do it with, uh, enough people. So it was just super fun for me, both because it was a great hunt, but also because we got to do it together. Absolutely. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. There's there's something, um, you know, m- maybe it's a little bit of where I grew up on, you know, essentially on the west side of Washington on the coast. But that, I mean, that the coastal regions of Alaska are definitely just super special, beautiful, unique. I mean, you're just... Um, you know, whether it's Southeast or, or Kodiak, I mean, there's definitely differences, but there's, um, similarities there. And like you said, I mean, it, uh, in my opinion, it's one of the most unforgiving places on the planet, like, and somehow it, by the end of the trip, you want to, you, you want to go back again. So, um, and I'm not saying that it wasn't fun while you're there because it was like, yeah. it was a blast, but there's definitely, you know, I mean, it can, it can be sketch for sure. You know, and I feel like the trip that we had, um, like we got like a, a taste of everything. Like yeah. we had some nice weather, not a lot. And then we had some weather on the absolute opposite end of the spectrum and everything in between. Yeah. I mean, where else can you do? Okay. We, we shot deer, caught salmon and seafood, uh, almost in the same day, Mark. Remember we caught a crab. Don't forget that. The dungy, which Don't forget I, about the dungy, which I do. <laughs> I do think was legal. I think I think he I think he would have made it. it. We, you, we put him back. Hey, you made the right call. We made the right call. We weren't exactly sure. You know, I didn't have the uh, the shellfish regulations in front of me. Sure, uh, sure. Illegal crab just isn't as sweet. Yeah. You hear a million people say that. Mark. <laughs> <laughs> as the old adage goes, <laughs> as Grandpa used to say, I think he actually used to say those ones were sweeter. Uh, but uh, no, man, that's cool. Well, what, what you know, we're kind of going in trying to provide at least a little bit of a, uh, you know, an outline for folks who may be interested in doing a trip like this. And I would say, um, you know, don't make it. It's probably not your first hunt that you've ever been on. It's probably not your first backcountry hunt that you've ever been on. Not that you can't do that, uh, but um, you kind of have to have your stuff together or go, or go with people who have done it before, like yourself, Brad, that know the ropes, know the gear you need, know what to expect. Um, and can, you know, kind of, you know, assist with, you know, guiding somebody through the process leading up to, and then also like while you're there a little bit, but, um, what, like when you start planning a, a trip like this, Brad, like what's like, what's your step one? My step one is, is getting some dates on a calendar and booking a bush flight if you're going to do a bush flight so get those like commit to it get some dates on the calendar and then everything else i'm 
I'm a firm believer that once you, once you have some skin in the game, like you've spent some money, you got a down payment, you got a deposit down, you're going to figure out everything else to make it happen more than likely because you don't want to forfeit the money. So step one is like, get your dates figured out, get yourself a Bush pilot booked, and then you can sort of go from there. That really is actually a really, really good point. And I wouldn't have necessarily thought of that, but, um, yeah, otherwise it's just going to be another one of those things like, oh, we should do a trip like this. And then the next year you're like, oh, hey, we should do a trip like this. Yeah. You're like, wait, didn't we say that last year? Well, I think the over-the-counter nature of the tag, too, adds to that, like, flakeability portion mm-hmm. of it. Like, you can hem and haw quite a bit because it's not a draw. Like, sure. you, you can always get the tag. So I think to Brad's point, locking yourself in and mentally knowing, like, yeah, I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. Really kind of not forces you, but you're doing it. You're yeah. doing it. And actually, the over-the-counter you know, I guess nature of that tag also allows you to do that. Like, you're not, you're not like, oh man, you know, maybe I'll draw. Do I have enough points? You're like, no, if I want to do this, mm-hmm. we can start, do it. we can start planning it right now. And then going back to flights, Brad, like, um, or I, I should say like, um, you know, like your bush flight in, if that's the route you're going to go, which I'd say by and large, you know, the hunt that we went on was like, you know, the early season, like, you know, high country deer are up in, up in the Alpine. Um, I'd say by and large folks, I don't know of anybody doing, well, I could be wrong. Are people doing boat-based hunts that time of year? I feel like oh, that's yeah. always. Um, no, not not that not many that time of year. Most most people do boat-based hunts later in the year, just in general, because the deer are down, typically down lower. So I would say, you know, the nice thing about blacktails is you can realistically hunt them uh, as a non-resident from August, I want to say through December. Maybe it even goes a little later than that, depending on where you're at. Maybe completely out of line here and somebody from Alaska will I'm sure correct me on that. We'll say a, I know a, it goes, a liberal season. It's a liberal season. And I know I know that most people that hunt blacktails as non-residents and I'm sure residents too uh, like to do this, but especially non-residents that I know they like to do it in during the rut, which is like late October, early November, primarily because people don't like dealing with bears or the idea of sleeping with bears is very intimidating to people for understandable reasons. And then also because, yeah, you can hunt them down lower. So you can hunt them either on the beach or you can walk from the beach and not have to walk as far typically. And then also the deer are just in the rut. So they're just not quite as, uh, as you know, tuned in as they might otherwise be. They don't have females on the brain. So most people like to do that, but you have a, you have a large season season. And then, you know, picking which time of year, I'd say the other thing is you want to figure out, like, if you're going to go early, like, are you willing to camp? Um, or are you not willing to camp? There are some, you know, there's plenty of guided operations where you can stay at a lodge and go with the guide if you want to. I really don't think you need to for blacktail. I just really don't think you do. If you have any amount of experience underneath your belt, I don't think it's a hunt where <clears throat> you need a guide. That said, for some people, they may just want one and, and there's plenty of options for guided blacktail hunts, but I really think it's an approachable hunt. The last thing I was going to say, Mark, on the planning front, like first step is I would highly recommend that, you know, people find a friend, a reliable friend who's willing to commit to it, not somebody who's going to waffle. So find somebody, you know, who is that reliable person who's not going to be like, well, yeah, I'm interested, but let me, uh, you know, you need somebody who will tell you like, I don't know yet but I'm going to give you an answer by this date. And then by that date, they're going to give you an answer. Like everybody should have somebody like that in their life. 
Uh, because when it comes to Alaska, you just can't plan a trip with, this is going to sound harsh, but you can't plan a trip with people who are flaky. Um, it's just, you know, you have somebody just like drop out at the last minute because, you know, their significant others not happy. Like that stuff happens and it's real, but also <clears throat> the downstream effect is really annoying. Um, <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're committed and that happens to you. Yeah, it's not like, oh, you know, the kids had a soccer game. I didn't realize that, you know, it's, yeah. uh, you're, yeah, you're either, you're either in or you're out. Yeah. Yeah. And Brad, maybe talk a little bit about the, the finding a bush pilot. You That's know? exactly where like, I was going to go because like those guys get booked up, right? Yeah. And it's not yeah. necessarily something that you just like, you know, type into Google and get a list of like everyone that's accepting right now. Like how, maybe walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, no, it's a good question. So I would say just in general in Alaska, there are guides and there are air transporters. A guide is somebody who is going to fly you in and then literally take you on a hunt. So that's a guided hunt. And then there are these air transporters and they are by law, they can't guide you. All they can do is take you and drop you and your stuff off and then come pick you up. They're not allowed to take you out hunting. Uh, so what, and if you go, <clears throat> I think a really popular thing to do for, in Alaska for like caribou or moose or sheep uh, as a non-resident, you have to have a guide for some of those species or brown bear is you have to, you're paying for a guide or you're paying for a drop camp. And I'd, I'd say with uh, what we did was we hired an air transporter. And basically what we're paying for is, think of it like a taxi, right? Paying somebody to take you from point A to point B, drop you off and then and pick you up. Um, and there are a lot of air transporters out there and some are better than others. And some are more reliable than others. Some get over overbooked themselves, which makes your life more difficult because, but so it can be hard when you're trying to find an air transporter to find somebody who is, you know, a good pilot, but also uh, has good customer service and isn't, you know, packing in clients so tight that if there's a bad weather window, you're going to get delayed for four days, which is a real thing. <clears throat> and uh, I've had good air transporters and pilots and I've, I've had some bad experiences um, with them. And it, it can be really hard to sort through the good from the bad. And I honestly, the, the only way that I've had to wade through them is really anecdotal experience from people I've talked to. So like, honestly, like forums are quite helpful. Friends that I know who've been up there are helpful. And then sometimes I've just taken gambles. Like I found Willie by looking at Googling his website and calling him and having a conversation with him and just making a gut call from that conversation on whether or not I thought he was a good person. That, that was it. And he turns out he's a legend, right? He is a phenomenal human being. That is everything you ever want in an air transporter. But I had a list of questions for him. And, you know, from that list of questions, you can kind of get a sense of what kind of operation they run. And I would ask them, you know, you essentially are interviewing them. Um, you know, most people want to know, like, what's your success rate? I don't care about that as much. Um, I, I think most people obsess too much about what is this X person's success rate? What I want to know is, is, you know, how, how many clients are you trying to get in and out every year? Um, you know, tell me about the kinds of delays you've experienced in the past. Like, do you have, you know, are weather delays a big problem for you? 
And usually you can tell if they're so booked up or they're trying to feed you a line of BS that it's just like, you're like, yeah, I just don't have a good feeling about this person. That's, I mean, that's just kind of the way you do it. You have to come up with a, a set of questions to try and ferret out what you're getting yourself into. Yeah. And, and like you said, you know, I mean, <clears throat> I would imagine, and I'm not a pilot. I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I'm not. <clears throat> and so this is just speculation. Wow. Yeah, I know. Jeez. Sorry, I didn't mean to surprise you like this. Okay. Um, write that down. Right here, right now, right? Oh, my gosh. Um, but you kind of, I would think there's some level of, like, making hay while the sun shines, right? You know, as far as, like, you know, you got your peak season, you got your, you know, your, your, your you know, general tourism. Like, we ran into a ton of people back in town. They were just viewing brown bears at various places. Like, yep. They just came up there to watch bears. Um, we got to do that, hunt deer and fish. Yeah. We got the triple threat. Uh, but also, it's like you want to do that. You want to pack it as, you know, I guess as much as you reasonably can. But then, like you said, like weather delays are a very real thing. I'd say particularly there... I know when I went to Kodiak, uh, oh, many years ago to hunt with my brother, you know, the, the, the big planes weren't even getting into the island. And I think that actually happened a couple days before we got here, too. I mean, yeah. you're, you're talking like, you know, commercial airliners not getting, you know, with the weather's too bad, visas, whatever, they can't get in. So, I mean, extrapolate that, that down to, you know, a bush plane, right? And for potentially like multiple days, now you got a lot of clients in the field, you could get backed up pretty bad. And, and that's, pr- I think that's also just, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Brad, but like kind of the nature of the beast too. Like that is just something that can happen regardless if you're a good pilot or if you're, you're you know, you're, you're overbooked or not overbooked. Like you could spend a couple of days on the front end in town or on the back end, not getting picked up. Yep. Totally. Yeah. You gotta like your, your, schedule is up is up to mother nature and you have to just be willing to accept that when you're doing a trip like this and not get wound around the axle on it so yeah that's that's another thing is when you go on a trip like this you just got to be willing to go with the flow and deal with stuff and not be too uptight about anything i think uh i i have seen people get really upset when their schedule doesn't go as planned and there isn't anything anybody can do about it. You can't control the weather. Your pilot, you don't want your pilot flying in bad weather for, you know, like that is the last person you want to push into a position they don't want to be in because they're, they're your lifeline, right? So um, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but if my pilot says he doesn't want to fly, I'm not going to be the person who's like, are you sure? Are you sure? It's like, if he says he doesn't want to fly, like I'm sure there's a good reason why he doesn't want to fly. And I don't want to be in that plane. So no, I'm going to, I'm going to trust his judgment. Too. Yeah. And yeah. then there's the flip side of it too. And this happened while we were there. He was like, yeah, I was supposed to, these other guys were supposed to be in here another three days. They just, they couldn't, they had to get out. Like there's going to be times where like, yeah, whether you're going to be stuck two days extra, but like just from our small experience, like there's going to be people that want to get the heck out of there too. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. 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 And that's the other thing. Like we experienced this where, you know, we had what, six or seven days we're supposed to be in there. And you really don't know, I mean, fog and rain limited our hunting time pretty significantly on, in that, that first part of the trip, especially. And sometimes you you just don't know, like you might think you're, I'm going on a seven day hunt. Well, you might have a day or two to hunt because you physically can't see anything. So you're going to have to deal with curveballs like that 
as they come on a trip like this. And I, I think that part of what you get out of a trip like this is the trip itself and just getting your wrapping your head around, like what you're actually getting is the trip. Not necessarily like I'm coming here to kill something. Yes, of course, that's what you want to do when you're hunting. But like, if you, if your idea of success is killing a giant buck, like Mark killed, you know, you're probably going to be disappointed because not everybody is Mark Boardman. You know what I mean? Right. Oh boy. Captain Mark. Pilot Mark. (laughs) Sir, did the, did the queen knight you before uh, she passed away? (laughs) Uh, After actually. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the spirit of the queen posthumously. Yep, that was on the list. We haven't even gotten into that yet. I'm gonna but look that up. No, um, but yeah, that is that is a very good point. I mean, that was one thing that kind of I guess I didn't really consider going into it until we made the decisions to like have hotel buffers and you know all those different like buffer times because you just you don't know what you're gonna get. It's there isn't a. Uh, it's not like hunting, you know, back home here where we check the ten day forecast and it's generally gonna be pretty accurate as in regards to what's happening. This can change, like the, in the blink of an eye. Well, even like Liz, my wife, before the trip was like asking a lot of questions. Obviously, she's concerned, wanted to know, and she's like, "Oh yeah, what's the plan for like this day, this day?" I was like, "Liz, it's nine days. That's literally all I can tell you." Like. And that's what it turned out to be. You might get out early. You might get good weather. You might stay in there. Like, there's just no, you can't go in with the mindset of like, yep, we're going to hunt for five days. Maybe we'll have a day for fishing. Like, you can, you literally cannot plan for that. All those things are a possibility. Well, like, even when we got picked up, one of the reasons we got picked up when we got picked up is because Willie was supposed to pick up some goat hunters, I think. But then he couldn't get in to get those guys because of weather. But where we were at, which probably wasn't even that far away, right. I doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our weather was fine, you know. And so, like the variability of the weather, just you know, from minute to minute, or even just a few miles, is like pretty crazy. Yeah. Um. What about? Uh, well, we should talk about Sawyer's bucks, plural, at some point. Uh. Why? Because <laughs> it's cool. It is, it is cool, but continue, Mark. Also, I didn't get any questions at home before the trip. Is that bad? That's a sign, but I mean, I, I would, wouldn't read too you, far into don't. it. See, I was going to tell him to read into it. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> no, my, wife, my wife doesn't ask any questions until I get home, Mark. It's okay. Okay, good. She doesn't want it. My wife is like a, she doesn't like out of sight, out of mind. She like she doesn't ask questions about bears. She doesn't ask questions about any of that stuff because she just doesn't want to know about it. And then when I get home, she'll be like, "So did you see any bears?" And I'll be like, "Yeah, a few." She'll be like, "Okay," and like that's the end of it because she's just like, (laughs) "Yeah, yeah." doesn't want to know. She's just like, "Take care, take care of your while you're there, and and we'll be fine." And you know, have have fun, get home safe. I'll see I'll see you on the on the back end. Yeah. Um. So. Hunting Alaska, obviously logistically complex, you know, like we talked about, um, can't costly, right? You've got some of these extra travel components, extra hotel days, yeah. potentially things like that. Where would you say, Brad, I mean, you've hunted Alaska for a fair amount of species where, like, where does this one stack up from, um, I guess from a budgetary perspective, would you say? It's, it's by far the cheapest. And that's uh, mostly because there you have a lot of options. So the number of air transporters for, let's say as a non-resident, 
If you're looking for an air transport for caribou, for the species you don't need a guide for, which is uh, caribou, moose, uh, and blacktail, the big, the ungulate species, I'm gonna leave black bears aside. Uh, there are, there's a high demand for caribou and moose and a limited number, I would say, of places where you can actually hunt those species. There are a lot of blacktail that are dispersed through a fairly large region. This is just me, you know, theorizing about why the cost is lower. And so your ability to access blacktails is a lot higher. You can do it with a float plane. You can do it without a float plane. You can do it from a boat. Whereas as other species, they kind of got you. It's like, if you want to hunt caribou, let's just say you want to go to the Arctic. Well, let's just say just for easy numbers, there are 20 transporters you can go with. And if they have, you know, 5,000 people calling them to try and book trips, well, they're just going to keep increasing their prices because you have, they can only take out so many hunters in a season. So the prices keep going up. And right now the cost of a caribou in particular in Alaska has gone is astronomically high. Um, it's unbelievable how much the cost of an air transport caribou, caribou trip is, has gone up. Blacktail is still fairly affordable because like if you're, if you're high, so when you pay typically for a moose or a caribou hunt, your transporter will charge you a flat fee to take you in and out of the field. Let's just say it's $5,000. They'll be like, okay, $5,000 per hunter. With our trip, you're paying for a plane load. The plane load is like, let's say it's $2,500 round trip to take you from point A to point B. Well, it doesn't matter. You can fit up to four people in there with small amounts of gear and you can divide that cost by four. Um, so Willie and other pilots on Kodiak, and I think this is pretty common with a lot of air transporters who aren't just big game air transporters, they will charge you by the plane load, not per person. And when you do that, it's a lot more cost effective because your bush flight and your commercial flight, those are typically your two biggest costs. In addition to the gear um, that you, if you need to buy a bunch of gear, but let's just say you have most of the gear you need, those are your two biggest uh, costs that you're gonna incur. Um, and so it's fairly affordable uh, to hunt blacktail compared to other Alaska species. Yep. Yeah, I'd, I'd even throw in the tag cost, you know, com yeah. compared to some of the other, you know, I quotation mark more premier species, you know, your moose, your caribou, you know, obviously you got your sheep and your brown bears and things like that. But it's, you know, what, probably about half maybe in general, I think, you know, it used to, it used to be, it you, the tag cost used to be really the only reasonable thing about hunting Alaska. But then like, what, four years ago, they doubled it or something like that. It did, yeah. At press time four years ago. Three hundred dollars for a deer tag and I think a caribou tag is like seven fifty last time I'd looked. Mm -hmm. Last time I bought one last year. So yeah. And you can buy up to three of them too. So you can ship a three blacktail. Um, it's just it's a good and you know, blacktail don't have the big antlers, unique antlers like caribou or a moose, but damn good eating animal, fun to hunt. I just think it's a uh, yeah, it's, it's a really, and here's the other thing too. It's like, I love hunting archery mule deer in the West. And to me, like, you don't have to hunt. You can hunt them with a rifle or a bow. Uh, last year I did it with a bow and it was so much fun. It reminded me of archery mule deer hunting in the West, but I had three tags in my pocket. So <laughs> it was just, you know, uh, it was a blast. And I, I'd say like, yeah, the, the multiple tag thing is, is awesome. 
But even if you get one deer, like you, you kind of have your hands full at that, or you can have your hands full, you know, depending on, you know, where you're at and, you know, what you need to do to get that deer out, when the pilot might be able to come get you to get your meat, you know, and those, those meat logistics are, you know, just a thing unto themselves as well. Yeah, absolutely. What, um, you know, I'm, I'm even trying to think, um, like what, like what's your, what's your thought process once you get a deer down out there? Like, cause you know, like we had, like I said, like a little mix of everything weather, but the clock is kind of ticking. Yeah. It's, it's warm early season. So, and because it's so wet there and there aren't really any trees for the most part. Right. Um, especially if you're hunting a little bit higher elevation, like we were. So, I mean, my thought process is basically you, you try and get the meat cooled off as much as you can and, and air flow around the meat. Um, so which usually means trying to keep it out of the rain if it's raining, because there's, there's two things that are important for meat care to keep them going bad. Uh, one is, uh, they keep help, excuse me. There are two things that help prevent bacterial growth. One is cooling off the meat and the other is drying out the outside of your quarter. So if you can cool it off and then get a nice rind around your meat, that will make it really diff- much more difficult for bacteria to grow and, and cause your meat to go sour. Right. Um, but that time of year you are, you're on a clock and you do have to get it out. And I think, I don't know if you guys heard this, but Willie mentioned that some of the goat hunters he had that were quite up high, they had their meat spoil on them because they were socked in and he couldn't come in and grab their meat and take it out. So I think you, you really need to plan on two things. You're going early season. One is, uh, you know, just be prepared to get that meat to a place where a pilot can fly it out. So figure out if you ask your pilot, if they can do a meat run to cut and then put it on a cool in a cooler or a freezer for you back in town. Um, or, you know, go later in the season when it's like getting down to freezing at night or close to freezing, just so you can, uh, you can be out in the field for longer. So Brad, maybe, you know, that I'm very curious about the, the whole, like avoiding meat spoilage and whatnot, like, cause that is a real thing early season. Um, you know, the temperatures are warm. The wild card for me was kind of twofold. Like one, you mentioned there's no trees, nothing really to like hang it in to truly get that, like, uh, you know, 360 degree airflow. But the other thing that, that was, you know, something that I was in the back of my head was the rain. Like it, it poured on our meat, you know, Sawyer shot a couple bucks early in the trip. Spoiler alert. Um, not spoiled, just spoiler alert. Spoiler alert, not spoiled. Um, but uh, then we, we killed some later in the trip, and so yours were exposed to rain at least a couple nights, and I know ours were exposed to rain that, that night as well. So, I mean, maybe talk about, like, ways to, you know, if you do find yourself on the, on the, the bad side of weather, like, are there any tips or any, like, ways to, you know, set yourself up? Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 this is not a shameless plug for our products, but you do want a good game bag. Um, preferably an Arcali game bag, but you know, if you're going to choose, <laughs> if you're going to choose, you, you just want a good game bag because first of all, like flies are a significant issue. Like last year, I think I told you guys, we didn't have it this year, but last year, the amount of flies laying eggs on the outside of my game bags was like, yeah. made you want to vomit. It was disgusting. They were not, you know, the maggots weren't able to get through the bags, but they were certainly trying. So you want a good 
a high quality game bag. But what I've done before, Eric, is uh, bring a tarp to set up just to keep your meat out of the rain. And then underneath that tarp, build a lattice system with alder branches. So I had a small saw and I cut um, a bunch of branches, like preferably the bigger, the better, and just tried to make a lattice and lay, keep my meat on bone and then lay those quarters on that lattice system. So you get airflow underneath. Yep. And so I found like a depression and then laid branches across that depression and then laid quarters on that. And then I would flip them and it actually worked pretty well. It didn't, it wasn't as good as hanging, but it was better than laying your quarters on the ground and on the grass. Yeah. That's super interesting. That makes total sense. I mean, that's something that I always like think about early like that. It's like, you're, you're exposed to warmer temps. And I mean, when you don't have a tree to just hang it in, it's like my, my head was kind of spinning on that. Yep. So, but that does make a lot of sense. I mean, thankfully for us, everyone's meat was in a great spot. We were all, we're all good there, but that is good to know. Yep. One, one, once my, cause I hauled my meat out cause I, yeah. in, well, in game bags and then in trash bags. Cause I ended up, I just threw it into the, the main bag of my pack for the pack out. Um, when we got back to camp, you know, I felt the meat and then I just opened up the game bags So they were like, there was like some airflow going sure. into them. And then, cause I was a little bit concerned about the rain, but I was also concerned about like, I don't, I don't want to trap that much heat, but the ground was like really cold. Like it was yeah. pretty, oh, like yeah. that night it was cold. It was rainy and I felt like it was going to cool down like optimally, but also keep the rain off. But then like what Brad was saying, I think it like, if you can do that, that's optimal. Oh, yeah. and, and then do you, do you ever carry a tarp then? To, you said, is that what you were, did you yeah. mention that, Brad? Okay, that goes over the top yeah. then, kind of like a... Like a lightweight tarp and just build it like a, um, almost like a lean-to lean style. Okay, or, yeah. Um, just however you can you can fashion it with trekking poles or a couple alders, but just something to try and keep the rain off of it. Yep. Cool. Yep. Um, yeah, very cool. I was talking to a guy one time, one thing that he mentioned... I was like, oh, that actually, that makes a lot of sense, was like, he's like, ah, oh, if you, if you want to, for what you're doing, like, it's optimal that you kind of leave the, you want to leave the meat on the bone, but he'll, like, on a hind, he'll make a cut, kind of like, almost like that initial cut, if you were going to bone it out, but and then just, in. and then just fillet around that, I guess that femur yeah. bone or whatever, and then it, it just kind of gets some air around it and starts to cool it off around that bone where yeah. it might have a tendency to sour. Any, any reason to keep it on the bone? cleanliness you know yeah huh that's so interesting to me be less surfaces exposed to air yeah I don't it know. takes longer for that core that so the i'd say like if you could get that core bone cool off it will act like an ice pack in the middle but it will retain heat and it'll retain cold so if it's cold enough you think to cool it off at night Leaving it on the bone can be advantageous because if it cools down to, say, let's say 40 degrees, it will help keep that meat cooler for longer. It's not so much an issue with blacktails, but one of the issues with boning out an animal, which I just did on an elk, is it balls up into a giant mass. And that mass, the, the distance from the center of that mass to the outside is more than if you had left the meat on the bone. And so you know, the temperature in the center there is going to be harder to cool and heat, right? Um, and initially, it can be harder to cool if you don't flip that meat around when it's deboned. So if it's, it is deboned and it's in a big ball, 
you just want to make sure to kind of move it around so the warm parts get to the outside to cool off. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. While we're talking about meat, you know, we talked about the deer themselves a little bit, but, um, you know, I guess also comparatively, like if you're like, oh, I'm going to hunt Alaska, you know, remotely for the first time, these deer are smaller statured than a lot of other, you know, I guess maybe not a lot, but then, you know, like, I guess compared to like a moose, right? Like you get a moose down, like you've, you've got a big animal and a lot of meat on your hands, a lot of additional meat logistics, you know, potential for, you know, more difficult to get out, you know, just, it's just like really like elevates what you have going on there. So I'd say that is also another advantage of these deers, like, um, a little bit smaller statured compared to the, you know, less, less to deal with. Now I will say though, of the Sitka blacktails that I've seen in my life, these ones on Kodiak are kind of next level. Like they're actually big deer. Like a mature buck is pretty big deer well, that's because we all shot big bucks oh is that what happened <laughs> yeah i did <laughs> i mean we did go to a spot that had a particularly large uh i would say significant number of very mature bucks so i don't think our experience is everybody else's is a is a a fairly typical experience in terms of the size of the animals and Mark, in particular for you, I think, yeah, it must be, it must be hard uh, to only shoot giants. And you'd be like, look at that one giant, be like, oh, this is the average size. No, Mark, you just shot a giant buck. Yeah. Are they, are they all 260 pounds on the hoof or <laughs> is this how this works? I've been getting a lot are they of all boot and Crockett? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They all boot and Crockett. Yeah. Does everybody else shoot boot yeah. and Crockett? Yeah. yeah. Is yeah. this good? Is it? Just, is it? Oh, so you guys could fit your hands around the base. Oh, no, I yeah, not yeah. even close. It was quite, honestly, yeah. it was quite cumbersome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, dude, super fortunate. And Tune into the hunt to, to see it. Tune into the hunt, which we, yeah, we did video document. So uh, that'll be uh, for your viewing pleasure. Uh, it will, it was a cool hunt. It was a cool hunt. Check it out. And I will say, Brad, so I've shot in my life three <laughs> Sitka Blacktails. Two of them were two points, so this was this was uh, it was uh, pretty incredible, honestly. And I and and I, and I'll caveat that like you were talking about, like oh, if you're like trying to like if your goal is like oh, if your reason for going on that trip is like I want to shoot a big buck, yeah. Like I know it's like everybody's like oh, it's about the experience, dude. This hunt is about the experience, and if you go on a hunt like this and do all these things and do all this planning and hike in and and deal with the weather, number one, if you get home safe, you won. And you had an incredible experience. If you kill a deer and do those things off the charts, like honestly, for me, like the size of the deer, although like super stoked, it's amazing. Like what an, what an incredible animal. And Sawyer, honestly, everybody's deer were absolutely like, we're super fortunate, but at least for me, like it was kind of arbitrary at the same time. You know, you know, what's interesting. Like I have a lot of friends that don't hunt or are like curious about it. You know the thing I've talked about the least after this trip? Yep. The deer. Yep. Yeah. I, I would say it's been 5% of the conversation. Sure. Yep. It's not because they're not interested in it, but it wasn't, it didn't rise to the level of all the cool things and crazy things that happened to where I like lead with it, like, oh, check out these deer. Like, no, that was almost like an ancillary part. Right, right. I mean, yeah, you can look at those 
antlers and like yes like getting that deer is part of that memory that floods back but it's just like this just overwhelming volume of some yep. of the cool stuff i've ever experienced oh yeah yeah that's what we were talking about like we've you know been keeping a text string going just you know between the three of us like here and there just like you know toss a picture in whatever and it's like that's that's been the craziest part is like every night just going through pictures and whatnot like the other day i sent mark mark and sawyer a photo uh video of uh you know us in the tent after we got those deer back and like tents blowing you know like it's it's like that's the stuff when you're sitting there you know falling asleep at night that's the stuff you're thinking about you're not really sitting there thinking about the deer you know and i think that's what's pretty cool about it Mm -hmm. i'll I'll never forget sawyer and i snuggled spooning uh in a tent and uh the wind was just whipping so sawyer and i couldn't sleep jason who's not with us right now was fast asleep. He's he alive. Was... He's just not on. <laughs> He's not on the podcast. <laughs> Spoiler: You got to watch the video to find out what yeah. happened. Jason. It did get wild. Yeah. <laughs> Rest in peace, Jason. Yeah. Um, uh, just like listening to the rain and the wind just pound our tent for hour after hour in the dark, and thinking, wondering, I wonder when Mark and Eric are going to get back, and. I don't know how late it was that you got back, but at one point in time, we one of our tents almost ripped out of the ground because of the wind. And so we went outside to stake it out and we saw your headlamps off in the distance. And I was just like, it was just this kind of epic moment of rain that was just being driven in my eyeballs. And then seeing these headlamps just in the dark was pitch, you know, pitch black. And you just see these headlamps and I'm like, okay, they're okay. Um, but uh, yeah. I knew you guys would be fine, but I uh, also knew it was just miserable out. You were just in the thick of it for a long, long time in the dark. It was it was a little bit snarly, and I will say, Brad, uh, spotting the light from your tent was uh, oh man equally was... uh, like I mean, we had a good idea where it was, but when that thing lit up, it was just like oh. It's, it's so funny hearing that <laughs> from from your angle, Brad, because like we have the same thing from like obviously the opposite you know, point of view. And like, that was, we were talking about that. Like the moment that we saw the tent light up when you guys must've woke up and like, you know, got out of the tent, obviously turned on your light. And then the whole tent was just illuminated. And I can just like, I I can see it right now. Like just this illuminated tent in the distance. And it it was like, that's our beacon. We just got to get to that. And Mm -hmm. then like, it's all okay. It's all okay from there. Yeah. It was, yeah. A glowing beacon of just like, positivity and it was also um what's the word i'm looking for it was uh whatever made me feel quite good to know at least one of the tents was still standing right because you know you think you think like i've had buddies that had tents blow away yeah you know yeah um one guy there they got they blew away in the middle of the night you know crazy um, so that, all the tents uh yeah an, another plug for all, golly, I mean, all the tents were still there it's fantastic that is actually a good like kind of segue into some of the like i know you wanted to talk like gear and stuff like that mm-hmm. but i mean there there's so much to like 
having done it now for the first time, there's so my the way that I view that hunt is totally different than I I had it in my head from like a gear standpoint and what I thought I needed versus what I actually needed. I'd really be curious. Like I definitely want to talk to Brad. I know that I've got some strong thoughts there, but I'd love to hear like some of your thoughts, like before and after, like what you thought, like you need to before, you know, like exactly yeah. what you're just saying. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's exactly kind of where I was going. It was like. I have I, I own rain gear. It's something that I use ten percent of the time, and I hunt a lot. But it's one of those things where you know you, I've never actually like invested in in a good rain gear or anything like that. So that was the biggest thing for me. I mean, we'll get into this, but like we literally did not wear anything other than rain gear for the vast majority of the hunting. I actually didn't even bring anything other than rain gear up. So, you know, because I, mm-hmm. the early... I, was, I wore it when it was nice out. Because yeah. you knew it was going to start raining. Exactly. It was a matter of when. So it's just like, do I want to fiddle around and change pants? You're no, not going to. I'm just going to put it on. Yeah. So in my head, I, I kept like thinking like, oh, all I need is like just this like ultralight minimalist rain shell to pop on my body when it's uh, when we're getting a 10 minute pop up shower, something like that. No, that was not the case. It's a 10 hour pop up shower. Yeah. No. No, we were living in our rain gear. I mean, to the point where actually... You know, the temps were, like, moderate. Like, I just wore my rain gear over my merino boxers and my socks. Like, I didn't, like, I I initially had planned, I'm like, oh, I'll probably wear, like, my lighter weight pants under my rain gear, take it on and off, and then it just was, like, very clear, like you said. So, you're like, even if it's not raining, it's it's about to, or the ground's going to be wet and yeah. you need to sit down. So, yeah, yeah you, just, you just end up living in it. And I, I, I knew that, you know, but... Yeah. Some other like, I mean, obviously from like a, a sleep standpoint, like good sleeping bag, um, you know, like that was obviously a consideration, but I, I'm, I always kind of like air in the side of like creature comfort. So like we were talking about this, Mark, like you brought up like extra clothes and stuff like that. Whereas I left extra clothes out of my pack for the hike up to our spike camp. And instead I brought with like an ultralight cot. Mm-hmm. And I also brought up a the ultralight uh, little like chair, you know, like the little mm-hmm. like pop out chair. Two things on that one: the cot. When as soon as we got up there, like it was like that tundra type stuff. Nothing's flat, so oh, right. there was no way to get the the cot like you know assembled without as soon as you put weight on it falling mm-hmm. down. The other thing was the chair. As soon as I got literally, we got walked all the way up there. I brought that chair. I'm like, I'm throwing this thing in. It's only an extra pound, whatever. As soon as I set that thing up, I put it down and sat on it and all of the legs went all the way buried up to the base and into the dungeon. <laughs> I'm just sitting there on the ground. <laughs> so that thing never saw the light of day again. That, so. I mean, that, I mean, that's interesting. Cause I mean, cause, but you like, you love that cotton, that cotton has worked for you. That cotton like, works really, awesome in every other like right. uh, sleeping application for, for a, a teepee style tent. I love those little, like it's, it, the brand is actually called desert Walker. They're like 90 bucks compared to some of the other, like more expensive options out there. And they're just a little cot that'll get you two and a half inches off the ground. They break down about the size of a spotting scope and don't weigh a heck of a lot more than probably about what a spotter weighs mm-hmm. honestly so but it was funny like you're like i'm bringing this like i could tell like that oh, was yeah. like that was like a non-negotiable for yeah. you <laughs> and like in 10 million years the 10, 10 million years like the cot wouldn't have crossed my mind i'm like i'll bring an extra puffy jacket yeah. i'll bring an extra i brought my uh regular lightweight pants i think that was more out of like optimism mm-hmm. that like maybe it wouldn't rain yep um which was uh not the case but brad i mean like to show contrast you've done that hunt a couple other times 
and you had like superb weather. Yeah, I mean, I I have brought the heavy rain gear the last two times and have never used it. Just pack it around all the time. So it it's just you just never know what it's going to be like. But I think it's really interesting. It's really interesting for me to hear you guys talk about gear. I having you know we we didn't mention that we backpacked in right. So we got dropped off on a beach and then we backpacked in. So there there's an extra for us. There was an extra gear packing component for this trip. There's a reason we backpacked in. I promised for all you listening, like I promised these guys that we would see nice deer if we backed it, backpacked into this one area. Um, I hope it didn't disappoint fellas, but it also added a lot of logistic complexity to it because for example, when, when I mean, we had to just plow through some awful brushy ground to get to where we wanted to go. And it actually took us two attempts, right? We, we, we set out in the pouring rain to get to the top, of, to get out of the brush and up high out of the alders and failed. We went up a route sweating and going through, you know, whatever. Didn't work, came back down next day, found another route. But you really have to pick and choose what you take. And I, I, I do enough like backpack hunting that I've really got my stuff kind of dialed and I kind of tweak it based on where I'm going, but I'm, I don't like carrying a lot of weight. I really don't. I hate the weight of my back. And so I tend to underpack. And so I would never in my life think of bringing a cot, uh, Eric, Yep. <laughs> but, yep. but there are so many times where I'm like, you know, if I'm only going, we, we didn't backpack that far. So it wasn't that big of a deal. And, you know, a chair is not a horrible idea either. Um, but yeah, you, you don't think about the things like, oh, the ground is going to be this mossy, porous stuff that as soon as you sit on it, your, your chair is just going to like sink to the ground, you know, sink all the way in and become kind of useless. Um, you don't think about that stuff. But um, I didn't pack. The other thing I underpacked for was food. I have a fairly dialed like food system, but I think we were burning so many calories because it was so wet and miserable. As I told all you guys, I was starving for the first few days and just didn't pack enough food and started cannibalizing my reserves because I was so hungry. Brad, I wish, so I was on the opposite side of the spectrum. I wish you would have um, told me that because like I have like this weird phobia of not having enough food. So then I always overpack food and then somehow still decide that I need to ration my food. Yep. Um, so like literally it would have been the food v- version of like, uh, you know, having uh, dumb and dumber having, you know, extra gloves in the box. <laughs> yes. So you, I wish you would have just come over because... Uh, Mark's got yeah. Costco in his backpack. Yeah. I'm over here. Yeah. So, uh, begging for soup on the street. Yeah. <laughs> in the future, come on over. There's plenty of food. Okay. Um, gosh, that's totally, I was thinking of something. I was thinking of something. So maybe somebody film the time while I think of what I was thinking of. Well, there, I, but... I, would, I would just say that there, let me just talk about gear for a second. Yeah. That, please. Uh, we spent a lot of time collectively talking about gear. And I spent a lot of time talking to you guys about gear, gave you kind of like, we talked about like spreadsheets. I do think it's really helpful to plan out your gear very to, to a T, have a list of things and that you want to pack. And then also, as you're trying to figure out your gear, there are a lot of opinions out there on what you should and shouldn't take. Figure out what works for you. And also, I, I mentioned this to you guys that like, make sure you can fit all your gear in like a, a duffel bag before you travel. Like 
well before you need to get on an airplane, try and fit all that stuff in a, in a bag. Because I've heard of guys taking things like, you know, full hip boots plus, you know, a couple pairs of boots and that's just a lot of gear. So you have to make decisions about what you're willing to leave and what's really important. And ultimately a lot of that comes down to what you want, what you're going to be comfortable with. There's the, you know, the old saying that we pack our insecurities. Think about that really long and hard about what you really need. Like, are you really going to need 10 pairs of socks or can you get by with four or five, you know? And uh, you guys might be shocked to uh, uh, hear this, but I actually didn't bring a backup pair of underwear when we went backpacking. So there you go. Unnecessary weight. So do you really need it? Probably, but can you get away with just the one? They were a good pair of underwear. They were Patagonia boxers. So I had confidence they would be fine. Hey, we're, <laughs> we're, we're in the trust tree here, you know, and up the hill. We're not recording this, are we? Oh, Brad. Um, <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> We're okay. not. Yeah, you're fine. This is just some casual conversation amongst friends. But um, I, I mean, I agree. Like, I think I brought two pairs of socks up. I did bring two pairs of underwear and an extra puffy jacket. Uh, but like, I have also on that island, or I'd say particularly like Alaska, Southeast Alaska. Like, I've got also a phobia of like getting too wet and then not being able to dry out, which actually kind of happened to us. Did happen when. When we got back that night after packing out those deer, I, again, like brought more on the creature comfort side of things like cot and chair and packed less and a lot of food and less on the side of like redundant clothes and stuff like that. So literally the clothes that I had on my back, plus the puffy jacket, plus the rain shell, which were both in my backpack, were the only things that I had. And coming off the, you know, out of the field that day, Every single thing from like shell to skin was sopping wet. And that's not like any discredit to the, the rain gear. The rain gear did phenomenal. Part of it too is sweating. Sweating you know, from so the inside sweating out. from the inside out. Um, and got back to the tent. Well, I was even getting rain. Like I didn't have my jet, like just because it, like, up. it yeah. wasn't so like, and that rain was like blowing so crazy. Like it was just like coming in from the top too. Yeah. But when we got back, I was... I was warm because I still had my Merino shirt on and Merino boxers. And that, you know, that was something that like, I had always known that Merino retains heat when wet, but I had never actually been like faced with a situation like that. So you and I were talking that night in the tent and we're like, I'm soaking wet. Like literally could wring out my, you know, undergarments with, uh, uh, sweat and moisture from the sky. And, uh, ended up, got that off. And as soon as I got things off, I was freezing. And that's where your extra puffy actually came into play because mine was soaked. It was in the top load of my backpack, got some water in there and it was really wet. So that actually helped out a ton. Um, having that. Yep. That was like the, that was the dumb and dumber moment of the trip. <laughs> yeah. This. yeah here, sweaty. take this. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, Brad, and you brought up something that actually I think is, and I guess I'll just reiterate, um, like packing your stuff before you go and getting that really, really dialed. Cause like, I think I packed and repacked my backpack like 10 times over yeah. the course of like two weeks, just like, and some of that was like, Oh, like I, I'd remember like, Oh, I do want to take this. Okay. Well, how does that fit in? And you have a finite amount of space in that backpack and it can be like, a, you know, like 
you know, just like it's like backpack Jenga, trying to get everything yeah. to fit in. You you know, trying to get. Well, I want all my lightweight stuff at the bottom. Okay, well here's my food. That's pretty heavy. I'm trying to fit that there, but now I've got these all these bags of food. So how do I fit my other gear around that? The the other thing to remember is, at least for me, it's never going to be packed again as well as it is in your basement. Like that is the other thing you need to remember. Whether you're caught in rain, whether you're super tired, like the plane's coming, you're getting out of there, like. It is never going to be as perfect as you have it in your basement. Yep. The sleeping yeah. bag isn't going to be packed the same way. Like, you're not going to roll your clothes the same way. Food's going to be different. Like, that was the other thing I tried to remember. So I put it in, like, four different ways. Like, one super neat, one, like, just chuck it in there and see if it'll fit. And that helped me quite a bit. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and just familiarizing yourself with your backpack, too. Like, I, I mean, I, I was viewing my backpack as, like, you always hear stories of, um, you know, folks that are issued a service rifle, how they have to be able to service mm-hmm. that thing blindfolded. That's how I was thinking about my backpack. And, you know, I did a, kind of the same thing. Like I kept te- packing it up, tear it down, pack it up, tear it down to where I was just super familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's, you know, and that even just that gear familiarity is like on the mountain shouldn't be the first time you're using something. And I feel like anytime I go on a hunt, like there's like that one piece of gear that I do right. that with. Yep. So like I totally, in my opinion, rolled the dice. I got it. Yep. Like I actually, I really like my sleep mat that I have right now, but then there like was like a shiny new sleep mat. And then I pulled it out of the package and it was just like rolled up so nice and tight that I didn't want to like unroll it because I liked how much space it was taking up. And then we got to camp. I'm like, you know, it came with this thing, like this bag to blow it up and I'm fiddling with that and I plug it in. It's not working. I'm like, oh my gosh, dude. Like, I'm not going to be able to inflate my air mattress for this trip. And then I'm like, okay, F the whatever thing that it came with. I'm, I'm going to pull it out. And then it felt like it was stuck. I'm like, great. Now I'm not only, like, now I'm going to break my air mattress yeah. before we even start. And anyway, I got it out, blew it up the old fashioned way. We were good to go. And, and now that's my new favorite air mattress. Yep. But um, anyway, just another, I guess, an example of what sure. not to do. Exactly. You know? Yep. I don't know. Brad, do you, do you have any other thoughts there? No, just, uh, I, I think thinking about the gear is part of the fun of going on a trip like this. And, you know, I guess I, um, I own a gear company cause I enjoy thinking about gear a lot, but I, I also think it is a common thread when you go on an adventure hunt is to think about the gear and it gives you, I get a lot of enjoyment out of it. And I'm at peace with saying that it's like, and I, I feel like we were all on the same page that is dealing with the gear, thinking about the gear, um, you know, buying and selling stuff leading up to the trip. Like I, I think, I feel like that is something that is fun, um, for going on a trip like this. Um, so, and I, I think anybody that wants to do a trip like this should feel okay, getting some enjoyment out of, thinking about the gear preparing for a trip like and, this. and we we talked about this quite a bit like you're biting off a lot going to alaska but if you dial it in and get the gear you need for this hunt like you're you're, you're <laughs> like it is pretty smooth sailing unless you're going to mongolia or something like you're probably pretty well set yeah. for wisconsin, the rest of your hunting career wisconsin turkeys don't stand a chance no <laughs> no it's over now yeah. like it's honestly i feel bad for them well and i'd say also don't feel bad like splurging like you can get by on a lot of hunts with like okay gear okay tent okay okay backpack um this ain't it okay apparel 
like this isn't it. Like no. this is what this hunt is what in my opinion premium gear is built for. And it's all in it's also in my opinion it's essential because like and I don't feel like I'm being dramatic like it will say like your life is at stake. Like you're going into like a pretty like like hostile environment in some ways and like and I'm not trying to be dramatic but the weather the weather is actually what I worry about yeah. the most in in Alaska in general and particularly Kodiak like you know you get too wet too long like that's a problem you know um you can't so anyway I just spend the money on the good gear like you'll you'll be glad you did it is it is uh that is not a that's not an extra on this type of hunt um get some good gear plus i love gear gear is fun it is you do love it and you know, brad you helped me a ton with that google sheet but i really enjoyed that part of the process i thought that was super fun honestly yeah like i didn't get down to like the gram counting side of it but it was fun putting that spreadsheet together and it definitely mentally helped me get me in a good place like all right you got the column for acquired you got the column for packed like mentally that for me was like the switch going on like yeah okay you're good mm-hmm. like i'm not worried about forgetting something or you get there you're like i forgot three days of food like oops yeah like, it, it doesn't happen which helped Especially on a trip like this where the mental side of it is, like, critical. Yeah. Like, you got to have your stuff buttoned up so you can be kind of firing on all cylinders once yeah. you're actually in there. Like, yep. it's very important. Well, when we're talking about bringing stuff, like, up up and down and, like, you know, what, what you're willing to take, what you're willing to leave. On our first, uh, on our first ascent, Brad, you know, I had a, uh, a bear fence in my backpack, which actually is, rel- like, I wouldn't say it's a thing not to bring, right? In fact, you know, at our camp, kind of like our base camp, gear camp, where we had a few, you know, kind of uh, essentials um, stashed, uh, we had a bear fence around that, which I think is a very smart thing to do because, I don't know, it seems like bears can be curious or they want to break stuff or whatever. You got some extra food down there, like they'll get into it and, you know, then then that's a problem. But um, on our first ascent, I had one with us to put around us when we are at the top. I think you had one too, Eric. Somebody else had one, I think. Um, on our second ascent, the next day, that was not in my backpack. That three pounds stayed at the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I was like, yeah, bears. We'll see what happens. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> Roll the dice. I think too, like we did see some bears up there. Um, one you saw, Brad. So maybe you can talk about. The, I actually wasn't expecting to see any bears up there just because of the quantity of fish that was down low. Like yeah. I, I was like, and mentally for me, I was like, dude, once we get up a little bit, we're going to be out of the bear zone. They've got no reason to be up where we're at. Um, which was kind of surprising because it wasn't necessarily the case. We saw one just across the valley from yep. us, luckily going the other way. Uh, we saw a bunch, well, we saw a bunch while we were down low at the beach yeah. and then we you know, saw from more up, from up top anytime you would just glass down yeah uh, towards that other section of beach you would see bears in that right too. but generally like down low like i said there was that one yep. but then brad you guys were in camp and you had i'd say like a fairly close encounter which when you said that i was like really what, what the heck was he doing up here yeah that well yeah and i agree with you. most and i've been to kodiak um i've haven't ever seen a bear up high right say high like kodiak has i would say like lower elevation 
lands with, you know, especially when there are salmon running, most of the bears tend to congregate down there, but there's also berries everywhere. And so, you know, bears can get food wherever, but typically when there's fish, you expect to see the bears down close to where the fish are running because it's a, just a higher calorie source. Uh, but yeah, one day we were out up high on a completely open you know, ridge with maybe, you know, half inch grass and rock. And there was a real, real large boar that we saw right on top of that ridge. And it wasn't, I mean, he didn't get super close, but he got close enough. He got, you know, just inside probably 200 yards, 180 yards from us. He was walking at us. Um, and the first time I kind of waved my arms and yelled at him, he just stared at me with, those, <laughs> with eyes like, I don't care. And that made me a little nervous. <laughs> um, and then he kept coming. So at that's us. when I started crying. And then, um, <laughs> no, I just pulled out the pistol. I was like, well, we're going to dance, I guess. Um, and then he started, he came a little closer and then I, I was able to wave him off again. So then I really started, you know, moving a little faster and getting a little louder and, and he didn't like that and ran off. But I think the point is though, I have been a little, maybe a little too comfortable with the idea that you don't see bears up high when you know, they could, I, you know, I know they could be everywhere um, on the Island and just in general, when you're in bear country, you can run into a bear anywhere and you kind of need to be prepared for that. Um, most of the time though, those bears just, they don't want to deal with you, but you just never know, man. I mean, I, I have certainly have friends who've had bear encounters that shouldn't have happened in terms of, you know, the bear saw them and ran at them. You just never know. And that's just part of hunting in a place that has lots of bears is you're just kind of, you got to accept the fact that you're living in bear country and just be smart about it. I don't think you have to let it just overtake, like the fear overtake you. And I think you, hopefully you guys got an appreciation for that. I know there was some concern about safety and bears. I, I felt responsible for everybody. Just so you guys know, I felt a, a great degree of responsibility. Like if something were to happen to somebody, I felt like that was on me. Um, so, but, but I hope you guys like got a feel for the fact that yes, we were, we were definitely in bears, like all around us, but we didn't have any bears charge us or try and get into our meat. Um, or even shockingly into our low camp tent, which I thought for sure a bear, a bear would come down there and, and uh, plow through our tents down there. But yeah, I was surprised by that as well. Like we, we saw bears down there on several occasions from up high in close proximity to that camp. And like when we went down there, that was when we came around the corner and the tents were still just standing there. I was like, holy cow, that is the most refreshing thing I ever could have imagined. <laughs> it felt good. Yeah. Feels good, man. It, it does feel good. I mean, yeah. I mean, you just like, again, it's kind of a little bit of a cost of doing business if you want to go do that trip. Like that is that is a raw and real reality. And like you said, Brad, like if you want to do that trip, you can't let it consume you the whole time because you just kind of need to accept it and and but also be prepared for it too. Like, you know, I mean, right. I, I feel like we, I feel like everybody did a good job of both those things. It's like, okay, so we'll put a bear fence around our base camp. Everybody's going to have bear spray. Most people had a pistol. If you didn't have a pistol, you had a firearm. Um, what else are you going to do? Right. Exactly. You know, outside of that, if you're worried about bears beyond that, then you probably just don't, don't go, which is fine. Like, I mean, there's like, that's a legitimate thing to, you know, be concerned about. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, no, that was, uh, 
It's a uh, it's one of like the very cool things of that place, and also one of like the real kind of scary things of that place. You know? Right. I mean, yep. I, I feel like that's a Alaska in general for me. Like it's the coolest place on the planet, and it also scares me a little bit too. It's like that's kind of where you're going, and like yeah. this hunt for me, like I mean. 100% tested me like in a lot of different ways and I'm like totally like a better person and a better hunter for it. Yeah, like, absolutely. Um, what about Brad, maybe describe a little bit, uh, you know, so the, the terrain, like, you know, I don't know how many hours that I spent looking at, uh, aerials, you know, on this trip, but maybe the, uh, the discrepancy in what it looks like on an aerial versus, uh, when you get there, there's really no way you can tell. Well, I shouldn't say no way. I would say it's very, very difficult to look at an aerial photograph or hell, even from an airplane, what it's going to be like to walk in that country versus what it looks like when you're above it in the air, because what you, what you can't see and what you guys experienced is the density and the, the height of the brush and the grass and the ferns and the thorns and everything else in there. I mean, you can have raspberry bushes. You can look at a hillside and be like, oh, that's just some knee high grass or ferns over there. When reality, that could be raspberry bushes that are six feet tall. It's very deceptive. And you learn, I'm sure you guys did that. You can pick like the color of the shade of green that you look at can oftentimes tell you how tall the vegetation is because there are no trees other than I don't know, alder, I don't know what an alder is. Um, I'm not an I'm not an arborist, fellas, or a botanist. Um, whatever whatever an alder fits into. Or a pilot. Or a pilot. Uh, I think I think the alders uh, fall into the tangled mess category. Yeah, tangled mess. Yeah, there. Uh, yeah. So you can you have you have alders, and you know sometimes you get some cottonwoods down in the river bottoms, but for the most part, it's brush. And it's just very deceiving. What you we were basically from down low, which we did, we did an ocean landing, which a lot of people don't do because it's so miserable. And then hiked out of the brush. Very and the alders. It is true. Like most people will not do that. But I think we were, you guys will hopefully agree. We were rewarded with the hunting that we had. Oh, yep. Absolutely. You know, most people for understandable reasons, like to do a, fly in and land at a lake and then camp on a lake and then hunt from the lake. They hunt from the lake. I've done that. It's a very enjoyable experience. Um, but we, I, we, you guys really got the full meal deal experience, but anyways, I just say the vegetation is deceiving, deceivingly thick and difficult to get through. There was last year, I remember a quarter mile stretch. I'm not mad. I'm not making this up or exaggerating. There was a quarter mile of vegetation that I had to get to, to go get to a deer that had just, I was watching it, it bedded down. I was trying to sneak in and shoot it with the bow. I had to go down a simple drainage and it was mostly open, a little bit of alder. It took me an hour to get a quarter mile. It was so miserable to get, and I I did not anticipate it would take me that long, but sometimes that's just what it takes. Um, And that was all, you know, anyway, it's a long story, but the vegetation is unpredictable and deceiving and shockingly, can be shockingly difficult to get to until you get out of the the brush and get to the Alpine. And then you can just cruise up and down ridges and it's a lot easier. Yeah. Would you guys agree with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I I would agree with that a hundred percent. 
And the one thing, like when we were, like we'd be here at work or, you know, whatever at Sawyer's house and like looking at aerials and things like that. I think, you know, and this was even more during probably like, oh, maybe we'll go here, you know, conversing with you on like, we're, you know, when we're trying to pick where we're going to go. But like the one thing I was like to saying is like, all right, guys, we need to remember that these contour lines are 100 foot contour lines because I don't know what or I, mean, I guess maybe because there just wouldn't be contour lines necessarily. But like when on our, you know, digital mapping here locally, like it automatically transitions to 20 foot contour lines. Yeah. Uh, and so like and even so, like looking at them, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, like, OK, you know, that looks like a good route. Actually, I think we ended up going up. The route that we took was the route that we initially planned on taking when we thought we were going to land at the far back end of the bay. Then we ended up landing up towards the, you know, a little bit more towards the front of the bay. So we picked, ended up picking a different route up, which actually seemed fine until you got to that point where you're like, oh, well, you can't pass that necessarily, or at least, you know, not without a significant amount of risk. But, um, the steepness was still like yeah. kind of like jaw dropping to me when we landed there. Like I was like, I don't know if there's a way up. Yeah, nothing, uh, nothing. Uh, <laughs> like, did that even did that not cross your mind? Because it crossed my mind. Nothing could prepare me for that vert. Like I remember again looking at mapping and be like, you measure out what you think is going to be a reasonable way up there. You're like nine hundred yards, like nine football fields, totally doable, right? Like I can do that. It's going to suck, but not that far. You get to the base of that, and it is like, oh, my God. Like, you're not zigzagging up that, like, finding benches. Like, it is literally straight vert, like, yeah. crawling your way up. It's crazy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just you're you're tunneling through the raspberry bushes and stuff. Like, for, for the I, – I couldn't ever determine if it was easier for the first guy or harder for the, for the, the last guy. Because, you know, the the last guy it going all the way up, like, you have a path now from, like, everybody that's gone. It's all mud. But it's all <laughs> mud. It's all it's mud. It's just sheer mud. Like, that was actually back to gear. Like, one thing, there is no way I would ever consider doing it without trekking poles. Oh, trekking God. poles were I a I don't think you can. I yeah. don't, like. I mean, trekking poles, I mean, in my opinion, even though I think I'm the only one that strapped them on, micro spikes are, like, a yep. must for me. Um yeah, I mean, we'll go into the, like, trekking poles, micro spikes, gators. Rain gear. High-quality rain gear, high-quality shelter, high-quality backpack. And a level of insanity in your brain. A little a level of insanity and a thirst for adventure. Yep. Mm-hmm. Forgot, you forgot game bags, Mark. And game, game bags. bags. Yep. High-quality game <laughs> bags. Uh, nope. That is true. I mean, that's so true, though. Like, you do not want some junky game bag that's going to fall apart, that's going to, like, that is, like, not, it's just, like. Non-negotiable. Yeah, it's just not on the table. It's a trip you have to commit to. Like, get the best stuff. Yeah. Get the best stuff. Like, money at that point becomes no option. You're already committed to the trip. I think to Brad's earlier point, like, you're doing it. Right. Like, if you're going to have to pinch pennies for a couple months after because you got a little nicer stuff, like, to me, it's better than being absolutely miserable and ruining the trip. It's like going skydiving. Like, you jump, and then you're doing it. Yeah. Yep. And so you can't stop falling. Ex- except yeah. <laughs> accurate description. <laughs> except yeah. there's pro- skydiving. There's, yeah. pro- there's, <laughs> there's probably more risk of death on this trip, though. Um, no, I like it. I like it. We covered a lot of things. Um, Last thing we should probably talk about is... 
meat logistics back home. Oof. Meat is that? Yeah. That was something that, like, on the front end, I was most confused about. I'm like, how in the heck are we going to get this stuff home? You know? And I'm still, I'm like, how did we do that? <laughs> I mean, there was a trip to Milwaukee. It was like, it was like the, the trip itself is so amazing. Yeah. But there, which is, you know, and then part of the fun, I mean, there is a high level of work on the front end. And then there's also like a high level of work on the back end to kind of like make sure you get all the stuff home, cold, froze. Yeah. So maybe talk about that a little bit. Like, you know, we got back, we, we got Willie to transport the meat back. From there, we got it frozen at the hotel that we were at. So all those hotels there. Even before that, this goes back to Brad's about a pilot you can trust. He put it in his personal chest freezer at his home. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so that's yeah. a huge plus. Yeah. Yeah. Because he flew out what he made the meat run, came out, took it back. And yeah, I mean, like, that's just like a solid move. Mm-hmm. Like, that's yep. like, that was really cool. Super helpful. From there, it goes to the hotel that we stayed at. They have a freezer. Mm-hmm. Then we ship it. And maybe, like, that's where I think people need a little bit of context as to, like, different ways of shipping meat. So my, like, so my initial thought in my head would have been to get some waxed fish boxes from in town, which generally hold about 50 pounds of, you know, fish or meat, uh, tape them up, throw them in the belly of the plane as extra baggage, um, it and... You know, just um, and then with that, with having it froze yeah. solid, just kind of like crossing your fingers, knowing like, hey, yeah, it's probably gonna thaw, but not completely by the time I get home, and that'll be, you know, we'll be all right, right? And I think some people, correct me if I'm wrong, Brad, but if you go that route, sometimes, well, sometimes people put dry ice in their box too, or not? Uh, I I believe people do. I've never done that. I, I think, but I think you can. Okay, but yeah. I haven't either. We we went a little bit different route because of kind of, well, maybe you explain how we ended up shipping it. Yeah. I So I, the way I like to do it is most, I think 99% of people use wax, what are called waxed fish boxes, which are literally designed to ship frozen fish from, but you can also ship meat in them and maybe line them with a contractor trash bag. Um, I have done that and I don't like doing that to be, I've told you, I've told you guys all this, but I don't like doing that. I pre- much prefer if I can to go to like a Walmart or a home Depot, if there is one and buy the plastic totes, either the black with the yellow tops or whatever they have and put my meat in those just because they carry better. They don't leak. And the airlines really don't like it when you have blood leaking out of a box. In fact, they won't take your box if you do have that. Um, and Mark, you and I had to deal with a little bit of that. We couldn't, we couldn't find there. Kodiak was completely out of totes, uh, that we could use to ship meat. And the ones they did have were outrageously expensive. Um, so we ended up using the wax fish boxes. You really have two options when you're shipping meat, you can ship it as carry on baggage with your airline. So you can go to the airline when you go to check in and you just have your extra boxes with you. And you pay typically a hundred bucks a box, uh, uh, just like you would for luggage after your two pieces of luggage. So if you have your rifle case and a duffel bag full of all your clothes and gear, those are your two pieces of luggage. And then anything over that, if you have, let's say you have two boxes full of deer meat or one box full of deer meat and then one box for antlers. 
that's two hundred dollars you're going to spend on luggage. Um, we actually shipped air cargo, so every airline allow will has an air cargo program that anybody can sign up to have an air cargo account. So it does you don't have to have a business be a business. You don't even have to be somebody that ships things. If you want to sign up for an Alaska Airlines air cargo account, you can go on their website, Alaska Air Cargo website, create an account. You have some paperwork you have to fill out, but you can create an account and then you can ship air cargo. The nice thing about that is, and which we did, is you can take your game meat and freeze it and then take it down to air cargo whenever you want, before your flight, after your flight, doesn't matter and ship your meat to any airport where Alaska Airlines goes to. So I ship my meat back home to Boise. Unfortunately for you guys, Alaska Airlines doesn't fly to Madison, so you had to ship it to Milwaukee. But it was nice because, what, two, three days, we got back and we had some extra time, froze our meat, put it in boxes, and, what, two or three days before we were going to fly home, we shipped all our meat out. So then we didn't have to deal with it anymore. Um, for the rest of the trip, which is really, I think, pretty handy. Um, and it's also typically a lot more cost-effective way to ship uh, bulk goods. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, like you said, I mean, kind of the level of, it kind of took a weight off our shoulders yeah. at that point. You're, you're not like, okay, now let's, you know, while you're trying to go to the airport and you've got all your other gear along with your meat, like it kind of takes like just one thing, and it's taken care yeah. of before you before you even hop on the jet. So yeah, that, sure. that was you know super cool. I will say like it it can be a little bit tricky. Like Milwaukee doesn't have um, a freezer or refrigeration. So like I really had to, st- which it worked out fine. Like it worked out perfectly. But I just had to stay on the ball, call, see where it was. It ended up um, spending an extra day in Anchorage, but it was in a freezer, so it was fine. Um, and then just like make sure like, okay, cool. All the flights are, you know, everything's moving forward. And then I just, you know, drove the, you know, two hours, met the meat there, drove it back, got it, you know, we got it all, got it processed and, and off we went. So yeah, I thought that worked out really, really well overall for sure. And I feel like that's kind of like a hot tip, you know, cause then I don't, know, it's just nice to know that like really the, you know, like at the end of the day, like you're not worried about the meat, you know, which is right. kind of what you were trying to come home with, you know, along with all the memories. But yep, for sure. Like, you would just hate to have that not go right yeah. at the very end. Yep, exactly. Um, and not that it would go wrong if you did it the other way, but it was just right. nice to have it exactly. done. Right, exactly. Yeah, man. I don't know. Trip of a lifetime. Absolutely. No doubt. It was uh, off the charts. So, yeah, thank you, Brad, for helping us and and going on it with us like I, I i seriously i can't imagine a better trip so it was just it was, it was amazing dream team dream team and a dream hunt fellas yeah that was fun i had a good time literally think, as good as it gets yeah was, brad to your earlier comment about knowing and trusting who you're going with i think the mix of personalities and yeah. people on this was like i don't know if it can get any better yeah. like there wasn't any weird awkward stuff happening like everyone was positive like everyone was down for whatever we were gonna do like it was just like everyone was just firing man like it was it was perfect in my book yeah we we talked about that a bunch you know like and and especially like uh anytime you're filming something you know you you have that extra element an extra kind of layer woven into it 
And, you know, I know we're going to get another one of these on the books to mm-hmm. kind of like get the video guys' point of view on things, um, which that'll be a separate podcast, kind of like more, more hyper-focused story time type thing. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's where those guys really shine too is it's one thing to, to do all this stuff, but when you start filming it, it's another beast. And those guys never complained a single time. And I think that that is literally the difference between the trip oh of gosh. a lifetime or a disaster. Mm-hmm. I mean, Coop and Mike were down. They were down for the cause. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. I mean, yeah. And Jason, too. Like, and it was Jason, just yeah, like, we keep forgetting just because he's not here. Yeah, but yeah, he's, dead. he's alive. Yeah. Very he's much alive. alive. <laughs> just not here. Yeah. I, On the I podcast. I think that's worth noting, too, just the people that you go with are so important to whether or not you have fun and enjoy the trip. Yeah. I, true story. I met a guy last year, uh, not not in Alaska, but on another bush flight in an unnamed state where I was flown into an airstrip uh, with, with a couple of buddies. And we were landing on the airstrip. It was very similar. We got dropped off and we backpacked out. We met a guy at that airstrip who had come in with a buddy, never been in here. It was a big deal for him, a big adventure. His buddy was just overwhelmed with the situation and being dropped off in the middle of nowhere with no way to communicate with anybody that he ended up bailing on the trip two days in left this guy. I mean, they had put lots of money and time and effort. And this guy, this poor guy was just lonely and trying to make the best of a really bad situation so I, the who you go with is just so important and in so many situations you know when people some people when you get into it gets miserable and wet and cold like we were a lot of some people not not everybody but some people their first response is get me out of here i need to get out of here i'm over this like i want to leave and that is that'll ruin your trip it'll ruin your trip even if you don't have that mentality and Everybody on this trip had the right attitude of we're in it to win it. We're here for the fun and the experience, the rain and the wind and the cold and just the sopping wet boots for days on end sucked. But that's just we're just going to deal with it and put a smile on our face and get out of our tents in the morning and eat some breakfast and go hunt, you know, or whatever. Like that is just such an important part of having a good experience. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll double down on that too, because I think that's one thing like, you know, it's, you set, you do a hunt by yourself, like a solo type hunt, you set yourself up for like a different, it's a totally different thing, you know, and you're probably a little bit more focused on shooting like a really big something, you know, like I'm speaking from like a whitetail hunter's perspective, like a lot of the whitetail, all of, almost all the whitetail hunting I do is by myself. And you know, your, your goal is a little bit different than something like this. But when you get a group together, whether it's this or some of the other stuff, like, you know, we've talked about some of these wall tent camps and and stuff like that. Like it is such a totally different dynamic. And that is like, it's, those are the the memories I think that you just kind of hang on to and they never leave you. Like, it's just the coolest, coolest part about it. Well, and what's funny for me, Brad, going back to like what you said, like before this trip, I was like, oh man, like, I hope we get good weather. Like we're going, we're going in August, like. I mean, and you just like, you think like, oh, we're going in August. Of course you can have bluebird weather. Like the times that I've gone in August, we did not have bluebird. Like I've never gone and had like the trips. I'm acting like I've done this a lot of times. I haven't, but I'm just saying like, I, I, I pretty much plan on being in my reindeer the whole time. Um, so I was like, oh, I hope we have good weather. And then like, you know, we kind of shifted our plans midstream, like prior to the hunt, but we're like, okay, we're going to go in from the ocean instead of going in from a lake. I was like, 
oh man from the ocean you know because like (laughs) like you just like that's what i did before i'm like that can be pretty gnarly and but now looking back i'm like and part of it is probably the outcome because like i mean you know like everybody shot just like bomber blacktails like how could it have worked out better it couldn't have worked out better so I won't say that that isn't weighing in on my perception of the overall hunt, but like, I'm like, oh man, I'm glad we hiked in from the ocean. I'm glad we had variable weather. Um, like we said before, because it like, it really, like it really did test me and I feel like I'm just like a lot better for it. Absolutely. And it made it more, uh, we'll never forget it. A little more interesting. Mm -hmm. Yep. We all learned a lot about each other. I learned about Marky Bear. <laughs> Marky <laughs> Bear. I didn't know there's any more layers to peel back with Marky Bear, but I think we all oh, we all had some, some growing up to do in the end, as the, the old adage says. <laughs> maybe I talked myself a little bit, okay? <laughs> maybe I t- maybe I talked to myself in the third person as Marky, Marky Bear. Marky Bear, yeah. We're gonna need to get like a get uh, uh, meme or something, Ryan. We can talk. I've, I've got ideas. <laughs> For those, we probably should go. Like all that happened was I was in the gear tent and I was like kind of like organizing things, and like this goes here and I should put that over there. And maybe, maybe I got somewhat frustrated and I said, "Oh, Marky Bear." Maybe I said something like that. That's the story. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. You guys might remember it differently, but I won't, cannot confirm nor deny. <laughs> that's the stuff I remember, though. I don't yep. remember the wet boots. No, no, all that's gone. So yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like two. Like keep talking about it. Like you can't stop talking about it because it's like it's so. It's just so grand. Like the entire place is yep. so grand. Like it's like information overload, like sensory overload. Like everywhere you look, it's just like this crazy amount of input. Yeah. You know? And that's the hard part when people ask me about the trip. Like I struggle to talk about it, not because there's not stuff to talk about, but I don't know where to start. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Like it, there's like a freaking slideshow playing in my head of everything that happened. I'm like, do you start there? Do you start there? Do you start there? Like I've really struggled to describe the trip. I was going to say, and then it's like, and then if you do, you're like, how do I explain this? Like, and I think that's why. Just watch the film. Just watch the just film. Watch the film. Watch the film. Listen to this podcast. Start planning. Two films. Two. Two films. Dose films. Brad's got one. Oh, Bra- yeah. Brad, you guys were filming as well. So we kind of split up. So we kind of have two separate stories. Competing. Are we going to do competing, competing films? Release on the same day. Oh, I'd, li- <laughs> I'd like I'd like to say complimenting films, Brad. I, I I would like to say that too. I, I'm I'm joking. Mark. Um, um, it is hard. I will say it is very hard to describe an experience that it's only only you kind of had to be there to understand what it was like. But I do think the the films that I think both of us will put out will help paint a visual picture that will give people that are listening to this maybe a better sense of what it was like then you in a way that you can't just describe with words you have to like see it you really have to be there but i think seeing it will give you a much better sense of it absolutely for sure for sure yep watch the film listen to this watch the film be inspired plan your trip commit to it commit to it i'd say at least a year in advance like you said brad and uh pick some friends 
pick some friends, pick some good friends that you can depend on. And get on the plane. Buy some good gear, get, get on the plane. And get let home us know safe. what that trip is. Drop it in the drop it in the comments. Yeah, what is that? What is that? If it's this trip or a different trip, what's that trip for you? Yeah. And let us know. follow up with us if you if you go. We want to hear about it. And invite us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're fun. <laughs> <laughs> Marky Bear's down to party. I'm d- yeah, <laughs> I like to party. Well, on that note, Brad, unless you have anything else, we're all fun. Hopefully enjoyed this podcast, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Maybe we'll see you on the mountain. Bye, everybody. There you have it, folks. Thank you very much for listening. As usual, give this video a like if you liked it. Comment something below, and give us a subscribe to the Vortex Nation podcast channel. It would mean a lot to us. Also, why don't you give us a follow over on Instagram while you're at it, at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'd love to hear from you over there, and we'll keep you updated with all kinds of cool photos and videos from our adventures that we do here. Otherwise, we will see you on the next one. Thank you again. Happy hunting and shooting, everybody. Have a good one.